Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Explaining History podcast, and um, today I'm going to look at one particular thing, the uh, significance of um, Churchill's speech to the Houses of Parliament on the 4th of June 1940, um, at the uh, aftermath of the Dunkirk evacuation, uh, better known as the Fight Them on the Beaches speech. So without further ado, we're going to listen to some of it now. When Napoleon lay at Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British expeditionary force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, and if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle 
until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. This was one of three speeches. It was the second. Um, the first that Churchill had uh, given was on the 13th of May, the Blood, Toil, Tears and Sweat speech, um, which was his, um, his maiden speech as Prime Minister to the Commons. Um, and then on the 18th of June, um, following the uh, high point of the Battle of Britain, by no means at this point was the Battle of Britain over, um, the, he gave the finest hour speech. Um, and these three speeches together were kind of almost the Churchillian manifesto to the Commons, to the nation and to Britain's uh, allies uh, around the world. So he'd taken over, as we know, if you listen to the previous podcast, on the 10th of May, um, which um, was right at the end of the Norway um, disaster and at the very beginnings of um, Hitler's attack on Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg and then France. And the blood, toil, tears and sweat speech um, was given obviously within this, uh, this, this context um, at this point, Churchill didn't really think that the British Expeditionary Force was going to be routed within uh, under a month. Um, he thought that there would probably be uh, an offensive rather like that in 1914, rather like the Schlieffen Plan, that the British Expeditionary Force, um, the Germans would try to cut off the Channel ports, um, and the reality is, is that there are um, certain similarities between the Schlieffen plan and the, uh, the Manstein plan um, in that it relies on encirclement and the quick seizure of Paris. But unfortunately for the British uh, and the French, they are drawn into um, a trap in Belgium. And by the 28th of Belgium, uh, the King of Belgium has thrown in the towel um, he fears a further devastation in this country and, and what happened in the, uh, the previous war. Um, and this means that um, the uh, British on their uh, right flank are in, or their eastern flank, are in serious trouble. Um, there's, uh, that part of their uh, defences has collapsed. And this is what initiates really the retreat to Dunkirk. Once the, once the Belgians are um, uh, capitulate, uh, it becomes uh, clear to the French that the British might then cut and run. Anglo-French um, trust breaks down to the point that actually you have skirmishes between British and French soldiers. I mean, this is a kind of an outlier event, but it gives us a picture of how things were. Skirmishes between British and French soldiers as they were making for um, uh, ships to disembark them not at Dunkirk, but at other disembarkation points. Churchill was fearing the worst by the 28th of May. He made a statement to the Commons that day, saying, Meanwhile, the House should prepare itself for hard and heavy tidings. I have only to add that nothing which may happen in this battle can in any way relieve us of our duty to defend the world cause um, to which we have vowed ourselves, nor should it destroy our confidence in our power to make our way, as on former occasions in our history, through disaster and through grief, to the ultimate defeat of our enemies. 
The actual fight them on the beaches um, speech is uh, very little of it is rousing sentiment. Much of it is a long-winded and detailed account of Dunkirk um, that um, tries to, um, for example, relieve criticism of the Royal Air Force. And Churchill points out that actually the Royal Air Force, contrary to what the troops on the ground were thinking, uh, wasn't doing nothing. It was actually fighting extremely hard to force the Luftwaffe back. Um, the statement on the 4th of June um, is, as I said, is an account of, of events that was promised to Parliament and in the delivery um, with many sort of Churchillian flourishes of defiance um, that were designed to boost morale in Britain but also send a clear message across the Atlantic that Britain was not caving um, the uh, speech actually develops into one of the, the great pieces of 20th century oratory. Now, the, the myth-makers of this period of time, um, British uh, propagandists and um, the Ministry for Information, um, strongly suggested that Churchill's speech managed to galvanise the nation. And this has been a, a kind of a, a Hollywood standby ever since. It's a, a delightful myth, but unfortunately, it's not really true. Mass observation reports show that morale did not dramatically increase as a result of the speech. Um, the uh, simple fact is that the British Expeditionary Force has been forced out of France without its equipment and has come home in retreat and um, it has been a huge humiliation inflicted on Britain and a great many people were inspecting invasion themselves next um, an invasion which they saw as really being the would certainly be the end of Great Britain and the end of the society which, which they knew and valued so half the population of Britain um, thought that Britain would fight on so 50% of people and most of them thought, well, this is not really um, a war uh, fought by or, or in the interests of ordinary people. This is a war between elite groups, people like Churchill. Churchill himself um, has, had had a very unpopular uh, 20s and 30s. He was seen as out of step on issues such as the abdication of um, Edward VIII. Um, he was uh, out of step on issues such as the reintroduction of the gold standard. He was unpopular when it came to the question of India and seen as uh, an anachronism as India, um, as the appetite for home rule in India was to some extent shared in Great Britain as well as seeing a kind of a progressive and um, modern change for uh, the British Empire. Winston Churchill, uh, the aristocrat, was uh, not necessarily in keeping with public, uh, the increasing egalitarianism and collectivism of British public life and British public attitudes uh, from the 1930s onwards. And this would manifest itself in its most starkest in 1945 when he loses the general election. But Churchill was nothing if not consistent in his speech writing. Uh, the constant theme of uh, Britain being alone, uh, Britain committing to whatever punishment was meted out, 
and Britain fighting on single-mindedly to victory um, was there in the, the May 13th speech. He said, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never suppressed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. At that point, um, one of the appeals of Churchill's oratory is that he offered a simple and clear direction for the war. Um, the question uh, after Dunkirk of, well, what do we do now, is ably answered by Churchill. It's not, po- not popular in all quarters, but certainly it's clear and unambiguous. Now, previously, um, in an earlier podcast this week, um, I've talked about how, it was Monday's podcast, in fact, um, I've talked about how Churchill um, was speaking to the United States, um, two views of Churchill, Joseph Kennedy, or two views of Great Britain, Joseph Kennedy, the ambassador to Great Britain, um, it's, uh, his was that really the British would cave uh, following Dunkirk, uh, but um, Sumner Wells, um, the assistant of the Secretary of State, um, said that uh, he, he was certain that the British would fight on, and the recipient of this information is obviously Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was able to um, err on the, the Wells side of things um, when Churchill made his speech. And the idea that the British were a kind of a lost cause is slowly dissipated. Roosevelt describes the speech as firmness itself. Um, and... Cordell Hull said, the President and I believe Mr Churchill meant what he said, there would be no negotiations between London and Berlin. So this is diplomacy by speech at its most effective. And this is the real, uh, the real flair that Churchill had. You know, he's I've mentioned many times before that Churchill makes all sorts of ludicrous mistakes during the war. But his ability in oratory did less to inspire the nation than it did to inspire other world leaders that the British were sticking to their guns no matter what. And even when situations are extremely difficult, like 1940, once you have a world leader who is clear and unambiguous and is not going to waver, and the foreign powers can have some kind of faith in that, then you're on a much, much better, uh, uh, much, much better basis for uh, a relationship or even an alliance. And this was Churchill's game 
uh, all along. Churchill knew that the war without America was lost, that the British needed to distinguish themselves for long enough to um, show that they had fight in them and show that they were willing to commit and sacrifice in order for an opportunity to uh, bring America into the war. But ultimately the war couldn't be won without the USA. Churchill was in a, uh, a privileged position to do this and his mother, the uh, American heiress, uh, Lady Jenny Jerome, enabled him to play on his Anglo-American um, heritage. Uh, Churchill had met, visited America many times. He had been there at the time of the Wall Street crash to uh, look upon his own in investments on Wall Street and he understood American sensibilities quite well. And he knew that his role really was there to charm the American people, um, which he did through radio broadcasts and then visits to America and to uh, addresses to Congress. And much of this um, helped to negate the more negative view that the very influential Ambassador Kennedy uh, propagated about Britain's chances in uh, the early stages of the war. And much of this was in part due to the fact that, the, uh, that Kennedy had his own deeply anglophobic points of view and, and disliked Britain greatly. Roosevelt always had a soft spot for Great Britain anyway. Roosevelt was dismayed at appeasement in the 1930s. And that's was an, an interesting mirror of British views about American isolationism and the um, view that um, the British really should be the uh, regional hegemon or the regional power in Europe, uh, Roosevelt thought, and should be dealing with Europe's rogue states. Roosevelt wrote in 1939 about the British fatalist attitude and the kind of bleak outlook in Britain. I wish the British would stop this, we who are about to die salute the attitude. What the British need today is a good stiff grog inducing not only to the desire to save civilization, but the continued belief that they can do it. In such an event, they will have a lot more support from their American cousins. And whilst Roosevelt deeply disliked Kennedy and referred to him as an appeaser, and suspected that Kennedy would quite like a deal between Britain and Nazi Germany, and indeed the USA and Nazi Germany to be struck, um, the importance of what he had to say could not simply be dismissed the uh, weakness of Britain's position at the time um, couldn't be made up by simply martial spirit alone. On May the 28th, 1940, Lord Halifax um, decided that it was probably best to impress upon Churchill the importance of taking up uh, Mussolini's offer to mediate between Hitler and uh, the British government. And whilst Chamberlain, who had been politically discredited and stripped of his leadership role, um, was, uh, he was still there and still emphatic that this was probably uh, the only thing that Britain could do. He said, Britain should be ready to consider decent terms if such were offered to us. And Churchill's perhaps fourth great speech of that year followed soon afterwards to Cabinet. He said, every man of you uh, would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this long island history of ours is to end, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground.
On May the 15th, Churchill had already written to Roosevelt and said, As you are no doubt aware, the scene has darkened swiftly. The enemy has a marked preponderance in the air. The small countries are simply smashed up one by one, like matchwood. We expect to be attacked here ourselves, both from the air and by parachute and airborne troops in the near future, and are getting ready for them. If necessary, we shall continue the war alone, and we are not afraid of that. But I trust you realise, Mr President, that the voice and force of the United States may count for nothing if they are withheld too long. You may have a completely subjugated, Nazified Europe established with astonishing swiftness, and the weight may be more than we can bear. Immediate needs are, first of all, the loan of 40 or 50 of your older destroyers. Secondly, we want several hundred of the latest types of aircraft. Thirdly, anti-aircraft equipment and ammunition. Fourthly, we need to purchase steel in the United States. This also applies to other materials. We shall go on paying for dollars, uh, paying uh, dollars for as long as we can, but I should like to feel reasonably sure that when we can pay no more, you will give us the stuff all the same. Fifthly, the visit of a United States squadron to Irish ports, which might well be prolonged, would be invaluable. Sixth, I am looking for you to keep that Japanese dog quiet in the Pacific. Churchill was showing all his cards, and there weren't many of them. It was a letter where there was almost uh, a plea for help. It was presumptuous, it was brazen, um, and it was really, um, it put Roosevelt in a very powerful position in the beginning of their relationship. On June the 15th, again he wrote, I know well, Mr President, that your eye will have already searched these depths, but I feel I have the right to place on record the vital matter in which American interests are at stake in our battle. Adding that Britain would become a vassal state of the Hitler Empire and there would be a gift of the British fleet to Germany in the process. At the moment, said Churchill, overwhelming sea power would be in Hitler's hands. So uh, there were a, means, a variety of means of communicating between um, Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, Churchill's speeches, um, declare, uh, declaring resolute steadfastness in the face of evil, but also blackmail. Um, Churchill used uh, simply uh, and showed Roosevelt what he wanted and also outlined the consequences of Roosevelt not giving these things to him. And later on, um, when we talk about uh, the Arsenals of Democracy speech, it's been a while since we've done that one, so we'll, we'll redo it, um, the key themes that Churchill's bringing up are clearly in Roosevelt's thoughts and are transmitted to the American people. Anyway, I hope you found this useful. I will be setting up a Patreon page for Explaining History, so if there's anybody out there that uh, would like to contribute and uh, find uh, a like to contribute a tiny sum a month to keep us going with some of the uh, ongoing costs we have, uh, that would be very gratefully received, and more on that soon.